Hey, Craig. Hey, Simon. So what do you have for me today? I have um, the pretty much the latest kind of obsessive uh, reading hole that I fell down. Um, has to do with, well, a couple things. So it's a, it's a journey um, that goes through uh, the history of color and also uh, the Parthenon and Jello and eventually into Target and Marie Kondo. Um, okay. Which it, it will absolutely make sense by the time I'm done. I promise. All right, all right um, let's go, let's go through each of those. So the history of color. Yes. Um, well, yeah. part of the history of color, I, I, not all color. That's way too broad. Yeah. Okay. So I know nothing about the history of color. What was the next thing? Um, uh, the Parthenon. Parthenon. That sounds like either Greek or Roman. Yeah, Greek. Greek. Okay. Well, I've never been to Greece, so I'm I'm okay not knowing that. Yeah. Um, what was it? What was after that? Jello. Jello, um, you know, I know uh what's his name? The Cos Bill Cosby. Or yeah. is that pudding? That's pudding, but I think it was okay. jello pudding. So you were you actually, yeah, it's not too far off, I guess. Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna go deep on Bill Cosby. Yes. And then what was the next thing? Um I know Marie, Marie Kondo. Marie yeah. Kondo. So she she wrote a famous book or something like that about the, the not like kind of like getting th getting rid of things that don't bring you joy. Yeah. But I think I read recently she's now like had kids and now she just like is a borderline hoarder or something and is like completely given up on that philosophy or something. Yeah. Like that. I, I mean, I just kind of picked her, you know, as sort of a representative of that whole like the trend of minimalism, right? We're yeah. gonna we're gonna get rid of all of our shit and like free ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And any other any other items on there? Briefly, Target. Target the store. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I go to that store once a week, so I, okay. I'm very familiar. Good. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, cool. I'm ready to go down this this rabbit hole. Before we do, what's the name of the show we're on right now? Uh, the name of the show that we're on right now is Momentary Experts. Yes. Um, and, you, and you can get it wherever you get your podcast or on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go ahead. And so even though we're not going to be doing this each week, I do I do have a, um, a PowerPoint uh, prepared today. So I'm going to do a screen share because it is a, at least partially a photographic journey that I'm taking you on here. So Okay. You're, you're way more prepared than I'm ever going to be for one of these. Uh, here we go. So share from current slide. Okay. So one, color. And I guess I'll start by just kind of asking you a question, right? So when you picture in your head, if you were attempting to come up with the color palette of classiness, right? So think of like class and refinement and gala balls, right? And sort of the the color palette of clothing and of interior decoration. What are the what are the colors that kind of immediately come to mind as like the most readily associated with classiness gold and, gold and yellow maybe Go gold and yellow really you associate <laughs> yellow with like class and refinement like so, you, so you're talking about like clothes people would be wearing yeah. if they were classy yeah, yeah. Oh, i i'm just completely drawing a blank i don't know see i i guess what comes to mind to me is like a like a black tie event right so it's like okay. you know basically black and white right? i guess I, was, I guess i was thinking more women than men yeah if you were saying like what is a if you were saying men specifically yeah black and white yeah um so the first part of this is color and it it's it's a small part of the history of color that has to do with uh yeah class um uh at one point literally like legally in regard to class but you know what we associate with classy uh so this is just a random painting here i think this is like a presentation of uh maybe victoria right at a European aristocratic event, right? So you've got yeah. So so what I'm looking at is a vaguely impressionist because we gotta we gotta describe what we're looking at because this right. is all slipping from this is kind of like a it seems like an, almost like an impressionist painting in like maybe 17 or 1800s England yeah. or something like that. And yeah, mid 1800s continental Europe. So lots of yeah. white frilly dresses. Yeah, and white men, marble. And the men look like they're in some kind of military formal uniform or something like that yeah which i think was uh, super common when yeah if you were like a, a a prince you were automatically a general in an army um 
But yeah, just and with a great many sort of like very fancy uh, medals just automatically awarded to you. But yeah, so but I mean, broadly, the color palette is, you know, white or at least light colors, right? So like white frilly dresses, marble, everything very clean, right? Um, and then, yeah, if you look at original or official uh, royal portraits, so here's Queen Elizabeth II recently departed. But so these are her kind of two earliest official portraits, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, we're looking at here, the one on the left, she's sort of very regal, standing up behind a chair. She has a blue sash and a, a white, maybe silk kind of dress on. Uh, white diamonds in her in her tiara, and then and then the one on the right is uh, there's some gold embroidery. Uh, looks like a white sable or an ermine sort of. Well, she, trim, she just looks right? like she just looks like a king in the second one. Like she looks like she's in king's clothing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But as far as the color palette, yeah, it's white. There's some sable trim, some gold thread, right? And then you know she's holding jewels, and she's hold, she's wearing the crown jewels, and she's holding the gold scepter, right? Um, but, you know, sort of very classy, very refined, very reserved. I guess what you would associate with the British monarchy. And even on into, you know, when she was old, her official portrait, you know, white um, lace dress, uh, white gloves, still got the crown. And then on the right is actually the first official portrait of Camilla Parker Bowles, uh, wife of um, now of formerly Prince Charles is he King, King Charles now? Or yeah, can they change the name? He's King. I think he's just King Charles. Yeah, that's how okay. I, I, they just announced he had cancer today. So and, I, and they yeah, were calling okay. him King Charles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So King Charles. This is Camilla Parker Bowles. Still, so yeah, it's a kind of white dress with some fancy embroidery, right? But you know, still very reserved, very, very kind of kind of quiet, elegant dress, mm -hmm. right? But then if you go back to Elizabeth the one, right? The Virgin Queen. And in her portraits... Why is she called the Virgin Queen? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was... It's, it's just literally she never had... She never got married and was... No, she totally kid. did. She totally okay. did. She had, she, had, she had kids and shit. I don't, I don't know why they called her the Virgin Queen. Okay. I'll have to look that up. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah. So like her... A lot more color, right? So this, the one on the left is is kind of pre-ascension to the throne, right is post-ascension. This is like 1550 to like 1575 that we're looking at here, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's just a lot more color, right? It's brighter. It's more vibrant. There's a lot, it's a, it's a lot busier. It's an exercise in maximalism. The same here, particularly that image on the right with like the black silk brocade and then like purple accents and lots of gold and a literal either a sable or an ermine i think they're both little fuzzy creatures um uh on her sleeve and then on the left is yeah sort of the red um um what's the really fancy type of fabric silk, silk. no the fuzzier one. Oh, i don't know Velvet, 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 right? Yeah. yeah, but again, very colorful, right? Like bright and colorful and audacious and maximalist, and there's just a lot going on. Yeah, compared to like the present sort of much more reserved style of looking at a monarch. So what? Yeah. So, so in the original, the, the original photos you showed of Queen Elizabeth, she was basically just wearing like really boring white outfits. Yeah, and these are like in, almost like clown clothes. They're so like colorful and poofy and everything like just, that. Yeah, super maximalist. Um, so what changed? Well, this is a um, a scan of a sumptuary law. Uh, so in uh, medieval England and then up into the the Renaissance, right? Um, color was so closely tied with class that it was actually illegal to own certain colors. You can see at the top here, the color of, and it's spelled P-U-R-P-U-R-E, particularly purple. Purple mm -hmm. also meant dark blues, kind of that whole end of the spectrum. If you were not part of the aristocracy, it was illegal to even own the color. Wow. Okay. You, you couldn't have an article of clothing that was dyed that. I don't know what happened if you found some. Maybe you got to turn it into like the authorities, right? But there was like the colors that you could wear were associated with class, particularly royal purple. Um, purple was restricted to those of very high social rank, 
right? So why? Well, I'll get to that in a second. So here's here's actually um, uh, the text of one of the sumptuary laws. This is the one that Elizabeth the one sort of reinforced, right? So it was. Uh, uh, I'll just read it. No one, none shall wear in his apparel any silk of the color of purple, cloth of gold tissued, nor fur of sables, but only the king, queen, queen's mother, children, brother and sisters, uncles and aunts, ex and except dukes, mar marquises, and earls who may wear the same in doublets, jerkins, linings <laughs> of cloaks, gowns, and hose, and those of the garter, uh, purple in mantles only. Enforcing statutes of apparel, fifteen June fifteen seventy four. Right. So, and this is this is in what country? Uh, England. England. Okay. Yeah. So in the fifteen hundreds, late fifteen hundreds, mm -hmm. purple is not allowed in England unless yeah. you unless you are of of the royalty. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you know any of that long list of people I just read, they could do it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. the gold tissues, gold embroidery purple that kind of when again when they said purple they also meant like very dark blues things like that um and uh and then also yeah so certain uh fur so it says sable so i think that was actually a sable that was like painted just like hanging out on her arm because when you're the queen of england you're so fancy you don't even need the fur they just come and like live in your arm what's um, a sable it's like a very furry it's a it looks like a otter i think like a white otter right but like like very soft fur it's like a very fancy fur back when you know people were really into like fancy fur okay so yeah um so yeah again here we have so that's a sable i think on her arm. okay yeah it looks like, like a little ferret or something yeah like literally yeah a ferret sorry not an otter ferret uh yeah and you can see yeah so there's she's wearing like um uh black velvet uh with there are purple kind of embroidery on it uh lots of sort of like gold embroidery on the on the uh on the dress itself um the lace it's just it, it, it's all ridiculously maximalist right sort of all these things that are specifically outlined as you cannot wear these if you're poor and and it was i mean like jail time right like you you could go to jail if you were caught like i'm picturing you know like people like in an alley like hey come over here and then like they pull their coat open and then they got some just like purple shit yeah and, like yeah. yeah you want some purple stuff it's fancy right and, and like and maybe this is completely off track but like isn't like don't you always hear the saying that blue isn't naturally occurring in nature or something like that does this have anything to do with that or is this like not even close well kind of yeah so rare so so blue is a rarer color in nature i think it might be the rarest of like the primary colors um it uh you just don't see a lot of blue things right like yeah blue jays and some blue flowers and some sea life which we'll get to in a second uh but it doesn't happen very often and actually um the value in it came not just from its rarity, but just how hard it was to make synthetically, right? So mm -hmm. if you've seen, and I don't have any pictures of it here, but if you've seen uh, kind of any medieval sort of like uh, illuminated manuscript, you know, like the illuminated copies of the Bible, and there's this like very dark blue um, that's still super vibrant, that's because that was made with crushed lapis, which is mined mostly in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And consistently throughout the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, Lapis was about the exact same price as gold. Like an ounce of lapis was the same as an ounce of gold because it was so precious, right? Um, and they would have considered that color part of this whole purple end of the spectrum, right? If you're thinking about like Roy G. Biv, like blue, indigo, violet, right? Um, so these sort of dark colors are reserved. Um, and in particular, purple here. So um, they called it um, Tyrian purple because... Uh, named after um, a type of sea snail. So we don't see the snails there, we just see the shells. So this is a museum display of different kinds of like purples and reds and like, like a mauve next to some seashells. Uh, and so Tyrian purple actually named after Tyre in Lebanon, uh, but it was, it was made from sea snails, a particular kind of Mediterranean sea snail. Wait, and, so wait, so the, the purple that was worn by the royalty was made from a sea snail? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you had to go out on a boat and you had to get the sea snails, and one sea snail did not make a lot of this. So it was super so you did just like you just had to like mash them up and make like a dye out of them. Yeah. I don't know the exact process, but basically that yeah, they secreted some sort of a liquid 
that when they were sort of mashed up and distilled made purple dye. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so the vast majority of purple came from like in Europe anyway, uh, in the middle ages from this sea snake, right. It was called Tyrian purple, Royal purple. It also came from indigo. Um, so indigo and India have the same root word, um, named from a, kind of a European perspective, but it's a plant that grew in India, right? So the only other Which way... Was, but at that point, India wasn't a colony of the UK, right? No, at this point, we're now talking about, like, like you know, when the indigo trade really started, would have, you know, so like in the 1500s, really, right? Yeah, so yeah. they're through these, like, intermediary merchants, but again... So your options are go catch a whole shitload of snails that are under the ocean and mm-hmm. mash them all up. Um, yeah. Or, uh, you know, find somebody from India who's trading in this indigo kind of dye. Yeah. So here is a uh, sort of a period block of indigo dye. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in, I think, a museum in Germany, right? But that's what you would have bought, right? And it's, so it's, it's more blue than purple, but it was all kind of in that same color end that was reserved and also very expensive right so those are really your options right you can get crushed lapis for books which you got to mine in afghanistan or you got to get indigo from india or you got to smoosh up a bunch of sea snail it's hard to get it is a hard dye to make so it's very expensive and as because it was i guess so rare and so expensive, it was reserved for royalty was according to the sumptuary laws again if you were not one of that list of dukes and marquises and aunts and uncles of the queen and you know you 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 were not legally allowed to own it, um, and you would go to jail. Mm-hmm. People did go to jail for illegal trafficking in colors, right? Um, to a great extent, the colonization of the Caribbean was driven by this desire for um, indigo. Uh, so here we have a, an engraving of an early indigo plantation. So uh, the the majority of the plantations in I think Haiti and Jamaica. Haiti being the French and then yeah. Jamaica being the British were indigo plantations. So here we have a, a, a 16th century engraving of slaves who are being forced to work in indigo plantation. So the, the thinking was that like India is very far away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, and the, the, the climate in Jamaica and Haiti are kind of similar to India. So let's just grow this here. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the middle here, we have the the indigo tree, right? So you can kind of see the flowers there. This is mm-hmm. just like a representation of it. There being, yeah, so it's, um, there are steps here. So throwing the indigo into the water, stirring it, cutting it, carrying it to dry, um, you know, so they could get their own access to this color palette um, so that they could circumvent, you know, having to go all the way to India. Um, so, and it was cheaper as opposed to have to, buy very expensive indigo, they could just make it with slaves, right? And yeah, which is what they did. Um, all of this changed in 1856. So what you're looking at here is the original batch of what he called Mauveline, uh, Sir William Perkin, who was uh, trying to come up with a way to, I think, um, synthetically create quinine, uh, which is useful for like malaria. Um, and he failed at that, but he noticed that the soot that he was wiping out of a bottle after a failed attempt to create this had a purplish tint to it. So, and... so my guess is, is he accidentally correct? He accidentally created a synthetic purple, thereby making purple less rare. Yes, exactly. Okay. He accidentally created this and he called it Malvoline, right? And so, yeah, all of a sudden, and so here you see a period kind of piece of silk and some rope that was dyed with it. And all of a sudden, overnight, thanks to the Industrial Revolution and thanks to chemistry and science, uh, purple is no longer this rare, incredibly expensive sort of luxury item that you've either got to get from working slaves to death on a plantation with the Caribbean or harvesting a bunch of sea snails or buying it from India. All of a sudden, it's available to everyone. And... Similarly, overnight almost, then you get this change in, you know, eventually the the sumptuary laws, which were actually repealed in the 1700s, but then you 
that's that's when you get aristocracy who start to dress you know more in white and wearing white gloves and white frilly dresses and white dress shirts because if you couldn't prove that you were wealthy by having a lot of color at least you could prove that you were wealthy by wearing white and proving that you didn't have to do manual labor that there was no soot yeah mm -hmm. exactly um so and, and it's kind of like I, I mean i remember like learning as a kid about one indication that you're two separate things one indication that you were rich was having uncut fingernails so that you would see these photos of these like long spindly mm. fingernails and that was a indication that and i don't know if this is apocryphal or what but this was something we learned when we were kids and then also if you were you know overweight or fat was that that was an indication that yeah you yeah. were so wealthy that you could afford to eat to excess or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, yeah, I remember seeing it was like a, a series of portraits of I think they were like Italian nobility in the Middle Ages, and they're all just fat as shit. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, because it was like you wanted to immortalize how fat you were, so you would you know you would have a portrait painter come in, and then you're just like get my worst side. Yeah. So whereas shins, I want every, I want the one. Oh yeah. my god! Everyone's got to know how fat I am. Well, yeah. whereas like Vogue today will touch up model models' photos to remove cellulite and any any like mm -hmm. blemishes or anything like that. That was the original Photoshop, but they would make them look worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're like, ah, I look kind of too thin there, and they're like, that's what you look like, and they're like, can you make me fatter? I'm yeah. paying you here. I'm paying you good money. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Help me out. Okay. Here. Okay, um, so so this is how the like everything this the 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 signal of wealth was being able to have like pure white clothes. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, especially in like the 1900s, um, when it was it was pretty much impossible to. I mean, like any kind of like manual labor, you're gonna get dirty, right? And so, and and particularly sort of the growth in fashion then of sort of long white, um cloth gloves that both men and women would wear because again that proved that you didn't have to do manual labor right because your clothes aren't dirty so uh it was pretty much yeah so because this isn't expensive anymore and because anyone can have this kind of color uh they needed a new way to show that they were wealthy and so now the kind of the classy color palette all of a sudden shifted um and Along with it, you know, you get this move away, I think, from the sort of like maximalist kind of style of uh, dress and just sort of, I guess, what we think of as kind of more refined and reserved now, uh, because at the same time, you're wanting to show off the fact that you don't have to do manual labor and that you can afford people uh, to hire people to, to, to you know, wash the hell out of your clothes and to, to bleach them and to get them, you know, super white, right? Because that's another display of wealth. And and it all happens around the same time you get suddenly color is cheap and so because it's not expensive it's not classy and because it's not classy anymore they need to find something else which is not classy which is yes yeah, so you could black tie affairs and white shirts and white gloves and big frilly white dresses and just basically showing that they didn't have to do any labor on the day that they went to the the ball and they could you know afford to have it laundered makes sense so Continuing with color, though, because there's another kind of interesting bit to the story. So this is the Parthenon, as I uh, had kind of mentioned earlier. So when you think of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, I guess, you think of this, right? Kind of white columns and white marble, right? And just I think sort I, of... I think I know where you're going with this. Okay, keep on going. Yeah, um, which is you know how we've thought of it for years and for yeah. forever really right the white city on the hill the chicago world's fair exposition the white city right and, mm -hmm. and even you know now when people are sort of like evoking ancient greece with marble columns and, and shit it's gonna it's white and it's glistening and it's clean that's of course we know not what the parthenon originally looked like so this is the parthenon now here is a recreation of the parthenon as it looked yeah then the greeks it turns out loved color yeah and for the listeners at home the original parthenon he was showing was like what you would think of when you're visiting rome or greece today these like white columns it looks like now it's black columns and then uh, super colorful imagery 
up top uh, with paintings and everything like that of greens, blues, yellows, and reds and stuff like that. Well, I think the black is really just a function of the fact that this particular picture is at night. So this is actually hilariously in Nashville where they have recreated yeah, I've Parthenon. Been yeah, I've seen yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think it's just because it, like it's lit from the bottom, but okay. yeah, it's you know you've got these sort of bright, vibrant colors and a lot of blue because it would have been just as hard for them to make blue as it was later uh, for you know the people in Renaissance England enacting the sumptuary laws. So very vibrant and bright and colorful. Now, particularly pay attention to the figures up on top of the Parthenon, which you'll see are not there. Mm -hmm. So where are they? Do you know where they are? What you're saying the figures go back to the other one, so you're yeah, you're, those, those that thing literally at the very top, or mm -hmm. the well, paint it looks like a gargoyle, gargoyle or something like that. No, like all the people, there's a lot of oh, people. yeah, yeah, the people. Okay, so the paintings of the people and stuff like that. Yeah, so so hey. you're asking where are they now? Yeah, do you know where they are? I mean, I'm guessing they were just washed off, but maybe they were well, they weren't paintings, they were statues. Okay, and statues. depending on who you talk to, they were stolen or they were not stolen because right now, those which are referred to as the Elgin marbles. So, in the um, in the early ish eighteen hundreds, I think like eighteen twenty, maybe eighteen seventeen, something like that. This um, uh, British guy, Lord Elgin, travels to Greece, which is of course under Ottoman control. They're a province of the Ottoman, mm -hmm. and then he basically pays some money to some local officials to allow him to take the statues off of the Parthenon. And at this point, it's just like, is this, it's just some like degraded, like old relic that nobody's taking care of or anything like that. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, the line is that sort of like, it was just out there decaying. I mean, the rest of it's pretty okay. Right. And yeah. the, the, like all the statues that you see would still be there. They just wouldn't be, vibrantly yeah. colored which they aren't now yeah and um, i and i found it like when i went to rome i found it amazing i think there was like some like incredibly long period of time where rome was just abandoned so you had this like majestic yeah. city that was just sitting there kind of just untouched by like yeah. gener generations of people except was you know. that like yeah after like the last sack of rome it was like the uh uh the aqueduct was destroyed right and so Within a hundred years, Rome went from being like a million people to like less than five thousand or something like that. Yeah, and just yeah. basically an uninhabited like shithole, basically. Yeah, which would be wild to have like walked around there, right? And you still got sort of because I mean it's stone and stone yeah. sticks around for a while. Yeah, right. But then like not a lot of people. So here's a selection of the of the Elgin marbles now. Now Greece wants the Elgin marbles back. Greece's mm -hmm. position is. He may have bought them from some local Ottoman authorities, but they weren't Greek. We are now independent. Please give us back the Belgian marbles so we where, can display them. Where are they now? Like somewhere in London or something? Yeah, they're in the British Museum. Mm -hmm. They're in the British Museum. Um, and the British Museum's official stance is that they're the only ones who can take care of them. That's, yeah. that's, that's the official stance. Yeah, a, and I've a, heard a, this before. That's like yeah. their official stance on a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Uh, a, a couple of times officials like in the British government and with the British Museum have accidentally gone off script and said, yeah, it would just set a bad precedent. If we give these back, we have to get everything back and then we have nothing to put in the museum yeah. and we don't have an empire anymore. So this is our only way to still have one. Right. Yeah. So here we have the Elgin Marbles. But their statement that we're the only one who can take care of them is super ironic because in the 1930s, uh, the British Museum basically bleached these. So <laughs> you see how they look here. Yeah. Now, they weren't that colorful, but they actually did still have pigment on them. They still mm -hmm. had some color on them. And then in the 1930s, the British Museum was getting ready for a big exposition where they were going to show off their Elgin marbles, right? And um, hilariously, by the way, uh, in the sort of National Museum of Greece and Athens, uh, there's an entire room that's the Elgin Marbles room, and it's just empty. Nice. It's just waiting yeah. for for it to be yeah. returned. Yeah, they have all of the little like placards and stuff, like you see below the statues here, but it's just empty. Anyway, um, and when they were getting ready to do it, they scrubbed them completely clean, basically bleached the fucking things, got all the color, all the pigment off of them. Now, their official stance is that these were just some overzealous 
just super nitpicky, like anal retentive workmen who scrubbed the hell of them, which isn't really much better because like how long would that take? And nobody noticed what they were doing. Uh, some people think that, no, they just decided that they should be white because by the 1930s, in either case, if these were some overzealous uh, sort of uh, workmen who just scrubbed the shit out of them for weeks and nobody noticed, or if it was done under the direction of the British Museum, not something that they would want to admit now because it sort of undermines their official position that they're the only ones who can take care of this. You you have, an, in, in both cases, the fact that by the 1930s, it was already so internalized, this association of white yeah, yeah, with class and refinement, that when they saw pigment on it, they just assumed it had to be wrong somehow. This was either graffiti or they accidentally got painted, who knows? In any case, they need to be white. And this happened frequently. They would get in these statues, they would get in these marbles, and then they would just scrub the hell out of them until they were glistening and pristine and white. And it's, even though we now know that they were painted and vibrantly painted, I mean, in my own brain, when I'm, yeah, yeah. when I tell my brain to, okay, show me ancient Greece, I still think of white columns and white marble. It's so ingrained in how we think of it right yeah and yeah. it's shocking whenever you see a recreation of a statue yeah. and it's original because it looks almost cartoonish and bad like it mm -hmm. actually to your eye it looks more classy just com completely white than what it actually was when it was probably very cartoonish and maybe even what we would consider ugly yeah well um yeah and and when you say classy exactly right it, it's classier to us to have be devoid of color rather yeah. than and and they probably weren't as garish as that what we're seeing is the results of these sort of like spectrometer spectrometer spectrometers yes i don't know what the word for doing a thing with that is but basically it's like they probably weren't block colors in painting terms those are the base coats right and then they would have then sort of painted it much more finely so it wouldn't have just been like block green block blue block red right mm -hmm. um those are the base coats, but still, even so, when you do see ones that are sort of painted, and the assumption is they probably tried to make them look like real people, it looks wrong. Mm -hmm. And we can't make ourselves think that it looks right. And, you know, so part of this is because in the 1800s also was when you get uh, the independence of Greece, you get um, this idealization of ancient Greece as this sort of perfect example of culture and refinement. A, a perfect society from which we have since degraded. Um, it's why you get uh, the idea that you can't end a sentence in a preposition. Like you've What's heard that? that grammar rule. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, totally. Like you can't say, where did you come from? You have to say from where, where did, did you, come? you come? Yeah, exactly. I don't have anything to write with. I don't have anything <laughs> with which to write. Do you know why we have that rule? It's why? so dumb. Because in Latin, it is impossible to end a sentence with a preposition. Uh. I see. So the assumption was that among grammarians that because it was impossible to do it with Latin, that you at least shouldn't do it with English, even though it makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah and all, so, all those grammatical rules that some people still insist are true, they're like these like weird 100-year-old uh, or more yeah. older, like super old things that really like make no sense in contemporary lifestyle and only so only grammar prescriptivists like really kind of yeah stick with it if you ask someone to you where did you come from yeah. like it's it's a perfectly it's perfectly clear what i am what i am asking i don't need to but yeah it was this attempt to apply the grammar rules of a dead language mm -hmm. to a completely unrelated language right so there was yeah. this idealization in the 1800s especially of greece and rome but particularly ancient greece as this sort of idealized sort of society from which we have now degraded and and so yeah but so it should have been white it should have been refined and classy so they just scrubbed them clean and now we only know what color they were because actually doing sort of like um this particular type of x-ray that can see traces of pigment we can kind of see what the colors were um so from <laughs> uh this fact that it was really hard to get purple because you had to get it from sea snails to 
uh, a switch into the association of at least white with being sort of refined and classy. That's where I, you know, then in the 1930s, you get the British Museum bleaching the Elgin marbles to make them look more like they then assumed um, they should have looked because that was how they conceived of ancient Greece, right? So mm -hmm. there's this kind of trail that you follow through it. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. So, part two, Jello. Jello. I've never seen white Jello. I've seen. I feel like I've seen clear Jello, but I guess maybe that would count as white Jello. But I don't know that white Jello exists. I don't. I don't know that. I mean, I guess you could. I mean, there's like maybe I'm just thinking of gel gelatin, milky gelatin. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, there's um, panna cotta is usually white. Yeah. Anyway, but this isn't about colorful Jello. This is just about Jello. Okay. So. Before we started talking about this, if you were to think of like fine dining cuisine, mm -hmm. and I had asked you to come up with a list of like fine dining cuisine options, would you have included Jello in that list? No, no. In the 1800s, the precursor to Jello was called aspic, which is something that is made from. Uh, like horse hooves, right? And it was like yeah. super expensive. It was really hard to make. And isn't Je Jello has gelatin in it, right? So that yeah. so that's why vegetarians don't eat it is because it has yeah some some kind of horse hooves or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Jello is much cheaper to make, right? So it was mm -hmm. it was this process of like powdered gelatin. Eighteen ninety seven, I believe it was, was the invention. Um, and that's where you get yes a Jello mold, right? And so mm -hmm. this doesn't look particularly uh like hot couture. Um, but in the 1800s, prior to the invention of powdered gelatin, you had to make it with aspic and aspic is much harder to make. It's much more labor intensive. And so it was much more valuable. So this is a painting of, um, and I don't have it in my, where's the notes here? Cause I have his name here. Ah, I don't know how to see the notes. Um, I think his name is Jules Hardin, maybe. Um, okay. The painting, he was the head chef at the San Francisco Palace Hotel. And this painting is from 1874. And to describe it to people listening, you've got a chef with some fantastic mutton chops and a chef's hat. And he's holding a platter with some boiled eggs and then a jello mold. And then there's a lobster uh, on top of the jello mold and it's impaled with a little sword. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the lobster the, is is impaled to the gelatin. Yeah. I would and, like. I wouldn't even be able to if you hadn't told me that was gelatin. I wouldn't know that it was gelatin. Yeah, but you, you can kind of see now. It's like there's sort of things suspended in it, right? Yeah. So it's like a Jello mold that they put food into. Which if if you've ever seen a 1950s cookbook, they're all Jello molds, and yeah. we'll get to that in a second as to why that is. But yeah, so this is a the head chef at a very prestigious hotel restaurant in 1874. And this is his portrait. This is his official oil painting. And he has to show off to anyone viewing it in a way that he is certain will be forever immediately understood that he is only dealing with fine dining. <laughs> and he picks a jello mold. Okay. Right? And if and you look because, at... because, and the reason this was such a delicacy is because it was hard to make. Really hard to make. Really expensive. Um... The uh, um, there were all sorts of aspect dishes which were regularly a staple of European royal courts. Um, uh, one dish whose name I can't remember right, but it's like aspect dish with things like suspended, and it was like the official dish of like I think the Austrian court, right? And then you get sort of like if um, there are like menus of like feasts at like the, the Russian court, the czars, right? And it's it's aspic, right? Mm -hmm. So like you go to fine dining menus in, in New York in the 1880s, right? It's aspic, right? Sort of like it's this mark of luxury, right? And and people sort of, yeah, I, I'm presumably, or, or uh, presumably, you know, eating their aspic and talking about the fine notes of flavor in it and, you know, just super fancy. But then 1897, this guy invents powdered gelatin and all of a sudden jello is very very cheap it is no longer difficult to make it's so much easier to make than aspic right mm -hmm. um and but still for a long time so this painting here is an official jello advertisement 
from the, uh, I'm guessing 1910s, 1920s, right? But mm -hmm. they're still evoking in this official advertisement for Jell-O, this idea of luxury at home. So here you have a normal family around a table, right? They're dressed up nicely, but they're around like a dinner table, probably for their like formal Sunday meal, but they have a butler and the butler is bringing them a jello mold. Yeah. Right. The, the luxury and indulgence of something like jello is now accessible to the masses. Right. Um, like imagine having this same aesthetic applied to like a jello advertisement now. Yeah. Like people yeah, would yeah. assume you were joking. They would assume it was a send up, right? They were dead serious here. That's what they're trying to evoke in this early jello advertisement is this idea that, you know, for the average person who knew of aspic and who knew of all these aspic dishes, had never tried it for as long as they had been alive. Yeah. It was the domain of the wealthy. Now and so the jello, the yeah, the jello was so well branded at that point that its brand continued to endure for at least a little while, despite the fact that it was incredibly easy to obtain it now. Yeah, yeah. You you too can experience the the indulgent sort of luxury of, <laughs> of this, right? Yeah. And this continued for a while. You know, that's why. So this is an image from like a 1950s cookbook. Oh, this is gross. So this is a shrimp, cocktail shrimp, uh, suspended in green gelatin. Yeah. And there's something in the middle, I guess, some kind of dip that you're supposed it to looks make. like apples, maybe. Yeah, so maybe some um, kind of like apple slaw with some celery. There's a few articles online. It's become like super popular to like go through like a 1950s cookbook and try yeah. to make these horrors. I think there are that, like entire like super popular TikTok accounts where they go yeah, like cook these yeah. things. Right. And but it was still sort of you're seeing kind of the tail end of the fact that for centuries, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how far back aspect goes. You there was this food that was the domain of the wealthy, but now you're you're throwing dinner parties at your house and where you can you can give your guests the luxury of the jello mold, right? Yeah. And 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 it's a and it's a conversation piece. It's a, yeah. it's, and it's a I showstopper. Knew, and I knew jello molds were things in the 50s, but I didn't know right. that's where it really stemmed from. Yeah, like it's a conversation starter. Like you and your guests would sit around and talk about the fact that you had suspended shrimp in jello. Yeah. In green jello. Um, yeah, it's a, like, it's something that we laugh about today, but again, in this advertisement, this is even in the 1950s, they're still trying to evoke this idea of Jell-O as sort of being, you know, this, this, this impressive thing that you can make, that you can use as a, as a, as a centerpiece for your, your cocktail party that you hold. Right. Mm -hmm. And so again, just like color, you get something that is classy because it is expensive Suddenly, thanks to industrialization, somebody is able to come up with a cheaper alternative. And now it's no longer classic. And now the now only jello is now just the jello. only now the only jello that people eat is jello shots. Yeah, exactly. Right. So again, coincidentally, the thing that was refined and classy. So it's going back to this idea of, you know, if you were asked to, hey, what does like how do you define classy? Like what does classy mean? Right. And I was trying to think about this myself in my head. And I was like, just coming up with synonyms for classy, like refined, elegant, right? Mm -hmm. Not trashy. Do we just define classy as the opposite of whatever trashy is? Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. And then do we just define trashy as whatever the opposite of classy is? And, and it kind of occurred to me that like, I couldn't think of a really good definition because it's so consistently shifting, but it is interesting that consistently it is coincidentally what is also expensive. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's 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 a part of culture and it's a part of culture that is upstream or or elite. So whatever is expensive at the time is not always by definition because there are there are things that are expensive that are purposefully unclassy, but mm -hmm. the expense of it plays a part. Yeah. Um so that pretty much is jello. Right. Okay. And the story of Jello there. That's the story of Jello. Um, getting into part three, minimalism. So I was racking my brain and I was trying to come up with okay, 
do we have a present day example of something that is considered to be kind of a classy, elegant thing to do? Yeah. But also, coincidentally, is the domain of privilege and at least comparative wealth, right? And I kept coming back to minimalism, particularly Marie Kondo. So we, here we have Marie Kondo, who's sitting at her like reclaimed wood table. I tried to actually find the brand of the table. I don't know what it is. I guarantee you, I, I all but guarantee you, where she's, she's sitting at like a $3,000 reclaimed wood table, which sparks joy, mm -hmm. oddly. And so I was thinking about who gets to be a minimalist, right? So there's this whole idea of minimalism, which is that we are weighed down by these things that we own and it's clutter and it causes us stress. So Marine Kondo has this book and it's get rid of things. If they don't spark joy, you have a thing and this doesn't spark joy, throw it away. This doesn't spark joy, throw it away. But who gets to be a minimalist? So in order to do this kind of Marie Kondo, let's throw away everything that I own, there need to be a couple things in place. One, you need to be able to get the stuff again if you need to, right? Like once this craze passes over and you're, okay, I'll actually want things again, I can buy them, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not going to hurt me. Two, you need to have a pretty nice place. If you look at Marie Kondo's minimalist kind of living room here, you know, with her like very nice reclaimed wood table and like the plants. And I mean, it wouldn't work if you, so this is an yeah. image I took today off of Craigslist. <laughs> yeah. This is a cheap apartment currently for rent in Omaha. It's, it's, it's not a bad one, right? It's perfectly functional. And if you're a single person and you're looking for like a, the cheapest kind of one bedroom option where there's not roaches climbing out of the walls this is a good one i'm not shitting yeah. on this apartment at all but comparing this apartment which is just a normal ass apartment looks like the cupboards are probably from the 80s yes yeah. got linoleum flooring and some cheap carpet with this yeah this doesn't work if you want to be a minimalist if you live in a not nice place without a recent coat of paint on the walls and without natural lighting like natural uh, lighting and very nice furniture which is just coincidentally minimalistic but is also probably several thousand dollars if you're just sitting in this fucking apartment that, that we're looking at now with a card table and like a potted plant that you got from the lawn and garden section of walmart you just look like you can't afford furniture it doesn't work <laughs> it doesn't work but i think there are a lot of people who would associate this image with yeah just it's you know she's a pretty classy lady it's there's some refinement here yeah, minimalism and, and stripping away all of this stuff is kind of uh, as maybe as close as a lot of kind of people are going to come to sort of you know these kind of i guess for for lack of a better word here classy endeavors but they work when you call classy the a thing that denotes class and also going back yeah, to the original point, point. Of, sorry, I'm suddenly getting an echo, but um, going back to your original point of the white with uh, the purity and everything like that. Yeah. Most, most yeah. like, you know, like she can afford because she can have really clean walls and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It's not like some old ass house that has like stains on the walls and stuff like that. That plays yeah. into the part of the minimalism. Exactly. So what if as a definition of classy, we don't think of refinement and elegance but we think of it as simply the things that denote somebody simply by possessing them or exhibiting them to be a member of a class okay so sense. if you're looking at this there's no way that this woman is poor no the house is way too nice the yeah. lighting's way too good the furniture is way too nice even though she doesn't need any decorations on the walls, you know that this is not a shitty house. Not the case here. Okay. I'm with you. And so if we keep going with that, another thing that occurred to me today, and I don't have an image of it because I don't need an image of Target, but, and I looked this up, the average salary of the people who shop at Target is about $20,000 higher than the average people who shop at Walmart. But, and I've shopped at both. 
90% of what I would buy at Target is also what I would buy at Walmart. It's all of the daily things. It's toilet paper and the paper towels and the laundry detergent, right? Which are all more expensive at Target, mm -hmm. right? So what are you buying when you're paying $2 more for the bottle of Tide at Target? Are you buying better Tide? Is this upgraded Target sort of only Tide? No, it's the same shit. It's just more expensive because what you're buying is not better Tide laundry detergent. You're buying being able to shop in a place where there are less poor people. Okay. You know, okay. if you were to ask a thousand people what's classier, Target or Walmart, most people are just going to say Target. And they do have like knickknacks and, and little fucking candles and house decorations and shit, right? And it's that's why bullshit Target Sundays are always fun because you just go look at stuff and just buy random things. But again, 90% of what people buy are the same at Target mm -hmm. as they are at Walmart. They're not better. They're just more expensive. And I think that might be the readiest at hand example that I can think of of this direct association with, you know, why are you buying your laundry detergent at Target and as opposed to Walmart? Um, unless, you know, then a, a person could counter, yes, well, I have ethical problems with Walmart and, and what they're doing. Okay, fine. And I guess as far as mega corporations and sort of like giant global scale capitalism goes, maybe Target is marginally better than Walmart. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I would argue that mostly what people are buying when they go to Target is just to be around people who are the kind of people who can afford to shop at Target. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't know the comparative prices of Target and Walmart and whether there is like whether it's true that Tide is more expensive at Target. I do know that Target, just based <laughs> on conversations is like with, you know, other people is considered a slightly more upscale brand. I also know like in D.C., like Target was able to move in relatively easily, but like when, mm -hmm. when Walmart was originally supposed to was trying to move in, like the the city council like fought it tooth and nail and tried to like pass all these like specific regulations that would basically discriminate against it and you know put all these like restrictions on it and stuff like that. So there's definitely like you know the, the culture definitely views Target different than Walmart. And when I think of like the I worked in a Walmart for quite a while. I think of like you know, going back to that minimalist thing, like Walmarts are busier, like there's just more stuff crammed in them. Whereas like a Target, you know, I have one across the street from me. It does feel slightly less like just crammed with stuff. I don't know if that's like part of the aesthetic that you're the kind of minimalist aesthetic you're talking about, or if that's even related, but yeah, less stuff, fewer people, um, yeah. you know, just kind of a, yeah, a, a, I guess a calmer atmosphere, which also, I mean, if you are, and I, I had looked this up and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but yeah, I mean, on, like on average for your average target thing, you're talking about something being about like 15 to 20% more expensive at target, I think, than you are at Walmart, right? Just because Walmart yeah. has very low overhead and things are marked up at target. So, I mean, but yeah, if you make a store more expensive, it's going to have fewer people in it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and so that was really the, the temporary uh, um, obsession that I got into that made me a momentary expert on this was uh, these examples throughout history of a thing that is more expensive coincidentally being the classier thing and mm -hmm. then suddenly losing that status when it became less expensive and then finding sort of, you know, today uh, examples of, and I don't know when minimalism will kind of lose its status as the classy thing. I don't know when Target will lose its status as the classy thing and what will cause that. But it is interesting that, you know, and, and especially going back to minimalism, there's this thing that you you need to have a certain amount of wealth and privilege in order to do well. Um, and, and all of these examples get to this idea of not defining class as, you know, like refinement and elegance, but as the things that if you have them, people will know what class you belong to. Yeah. It'd be interesting to he to see the reverse version of this, like uh, things that were considered unclassy that then became classy. Like we, we talked about lobsters earlier. Isn't it the story that lobsters used to be considered like food for peasants? Like they used to like feed yeah. them to, they used to feed them to prisoners and stuff like that. And now it's I think you told me that on the phone a while ago. This yeah, you'd read that and it was 
Yeah, it was like, I mean, they were basically considered like sea insects. Yeah, sea roaches or something like, like that. Like, why would you eat a sea roach and it's down yeah. there at the bottom of the sea and it's just eating all that rotten stuff that falls down? That's disgusting, right? Yeah, um, and that I also like remember reading that like whenever you see lobster in like a stew or a, a soup or something like that, it's because they're trying to artificially keep the price of lobsters high is that if they have excess lobster, rather than just letting the price go down and it no longer being a luxury mm. good, they keep the price up, you know, for the actual buying of the of a whole lobster or a lobster tail, but they take the excess lobster and put it in things like derivative products like lobster bisque, oh, lobster, okay. l- lobster mac and cheese and stuff like that. Oh, it's like a, okay. Yeah. yeah, so that's why you never get, you know, there's like the old joke for like servers and restaurants, like push the halibut. Yeah. Right, it's 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 going to expire soon. Yeah. Halibut's half off. You yeah, you don't ever see that with lobster. It has to expire at the same rate as other fish. I didn't. Yeah. Huh, yeah. I never realized that. I mean, it's kind of the same concept with diamonds. Yeah. That they're they're not actually all that rare, and so mm-hmm. they, there are all these things within the diamond market to keep it artificially. Yeah you know, rare and stuff like that. Okay. Well, I felt like I learned a few things. I feel like our clickbait title for this is why purple was once illegal in England or something like that. Yeah. 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 All right. So do you have the thing in mind that, that you're going to do for, for your next one? Yeah. So should we, should we push stop or should we actually say this like on the air so people could get teased on what's coming up? Yeah. Tease it for me in a way that like, and I'm not going to go try to research it, but just sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is, yeah. The whole point is you shouldn't research any things. I guess I could like, um, I could run a few things by you and see how much you know about them. Mm -hmm. And that'll help me judge like whether I should do it. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. So first one is like, like how much do you know about like Japan's motivation to get into World War II and also like why we absolutely kick their ass left and right, even before we drop the, the nuclear bomb on them? I mean, I know that there was something about like an embargo. They were trying to get oil, right? Yeah, like they yeah. didn't have enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's part of it. And why did we, why were we just wiping the floor with them? I mean, I would assume it was just because of the comparative levels of like industrialization. I mean, mm-hmm. just being able to make a lot more stuff and bigger ships and stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot more that has to do with the oil and their access to oil and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, what about like prohibition? Do you know why all the different, like, because like with prohibition, they didn't just pass a law. They passed like an entire amendment, which is a gargantuan test. Do you know anything about like all the political factions that came together and like how like the ways that the ways that they gained the system in order to be able to pass prohibition and stuff like that? I confess that I don't. And it's literally never occurred to me how insane it is until this very moment. Yeah. It, that is it was really an insane. entire constitutional amendment. It wasn't just a law. Yeah. It was an it amendment. It changed the fucking foundational document of the government. Okay. Wow. I never. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So that's, that's a super interesting, maybe that's yeah. what I'll make. What about like the debate over whether if we could, we would eliminate all mosquitoes. Uh, the debate over eliminating mosquitoes. Uh, I mean, is that even a possibility? It is a possibility. I mean, I, I'm not fond of being bit by mosquitoes. I mean, I guess my reaction would be like, don't like, I mean, like, isn't that like what bats eat? Like, I don't want the bats to go. Yeah. Okay. That's part of the debate of biomass and like whether something can replace that. Okay. That might be an interesting one to do. What about like basic hygiene practices taking so long to catch on in hospitals way past the time that we figured out that um, good hygiene in hospitals uh, uh, results in fewer infections and deaths and stuff like that. And why it took decades and decades before those practices took on um you mean as far as like disinfecting things yeah yeah why did it why I, did it take so much time between when we discovered that that that, that disinfecting would save people's lives and it took like literally decades before it actually became like a common practice honestly i don't i don't really know much about the history of like adoption of sanitation in hospitals i mean i know like organizational okay. culture can be slow to adapt new things but that's mm-hmm. about it and that's okay. just me sort of guessing Okay. And then finally, this is maybe a little bit kind of boring, maybe just because I'm into media that, but like basically the history of HBO, like the, like you think of it now as like this high culture 
of like Game of Thrones and the Sopranos yeah. and stuff like that. But like understanding its humble beginnings of like why the cable industry came to be, like what it was actually, what problem it was trying to solve. And basically how HBO almost got wiped off the map, but an antitrust lawsuit saved it. Does that sound interesting to you? That sounds fascinating. And I know nothing about the history of HBO. Okay. All right. There are a few things here I could work with. Yeah. I'll, I'll juggle around and I'll figure out which one I want to tackle in next week's okay. uh, episode. But this was a lot of fun. I think our experiment was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, right off the bat. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think it went well, um, uh, particularly because I hadn't, I hadn't run through this yet. And so I didn't know if I was going to be able to get to kind of this idea that I was trying to work towards, but it, yeah, I, th I, th I think it worked pretty well and you didn't seem to be bored by it. So no, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording uh, right now. And uh, for those listening at home, we'll see you next week. Okay.